Well, happy Valentine's Day. Uh, this is a lovely place for a date, if, in, in my opinion. Um, you know, you can pray for me and, and my wife. They asked me what I was doing for Valentine's, and I said, you know what? I'm teaching on Martin Luther this week, and he's pretty much my Valentine's this year, because I'll tell you what, he's all I've been thinking about the past uh, week or so. Um, so... Tonight, we are going to be talking about Martin Luther. Uh, would you all pray with me? Lord, thank you so much uh, for your goodness. Lord, thank you for the freedom that we have. Thank you for the privileges that we have. Lord, so many things that we have available to us just at our fingertips. And uh, Lord, thank you for these men that we are studying, these men and women that we are studying, who have been such a great example. And Lord, just as you used them, Lord, may their stories inspire us to want to live just all out, full throttle for you. And so uh, we thank you for this night, Lord. Uh, lead us as we think through Martin Luther. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So Martin Luther. Um, there we go. He was born in 1483. And he died in 1546, and he is mainly known as the, the person who kind of started the Reformation. Although it wasn't just him, but he definitely played a key role, if you will, in this. He is known for the 95 theses that he posted on the castle door of the church there in Wittenberg. And if... if you ask anybody about Martin Luther, that's usually the first thing that comes to their mind. Oh, the 95 Theses. He's that 95 Theses guy. Yes. Yes, he is. Um, but also, he played a huge role, and, and we take for granted that we have our Bibles. We can read them in our own language. Well, he did that for his countrymen, and he translated the Bible for the first time from Latin into German. And so those are the things that he is most notorious for. Now, throughout the span of his life, he was a busy person, right? He was a monk. He would go on to be a priest and then go on to be a professor of biblical literature. And of course, as I already mentioned, he was the spark, um, if you will, in the Reformation. Now, we know that Terry mentioned last week also Wycliffe and uh, Jan Hus. They were definitely a part of this as well. Um, but Martin Luther had a big role to play in that. And eventually, after being a monk and a priest, yes, he would marry and he would become a father. Now, his, his parents were Johannes or Hans and Margaret Luther. That was their last name. Somewhere around between 1510 to 1515, we're, we're not sure, I'm not sure when, Martin Luther changed his last name from Luther to Luther. But his parents, uh, Hans and Margaret Luther, his dad was in the mining business, and he started off uh, not wealthy, but because of the business, uh, he was able to put his children through 
some schooling that was only offered to those that could afford it, to be uh, frank with you. Um, Martin Luther did have a brother and a sister. As I mentioned, he would go on to marry uh, a wife, Katharina von Bora, in 1525. They would have six children and uh, three sons, three daughters. And it broke my heart to learn that their second born, Elizabeth, died at about the age of eight months old. And also uh, Martin's third born, Magdalena, died at a young age of 13. And that just broke my heart. You know, you think about the difficulty of just all that came with that. Well, Luther, as I said, he had a father who was able to provide for him. And so he went to some schools where he was able to learn Latin. And in in this time, in this era, in the medieval time, if you didn't speak or know Latin, then you were very limited. And so he was able to go to these schools, study, to learn, to read and write in Latin. In 1502, uh, he got his Bachelor of Arts degree. Uh, in 1505, he got his Master of Arts degree. After completing those two degrees, he was then able to pursue something further. And in those times, it was one of three. You were either going to go on and pursue medicine, or you were going to pursue theology and philosophy, or you were going to go on to pursue law. Now, Martin Luther and his father Hans had already agreed he was going to do law. Because you know what, son, this is going to be helpful for the business. You're going to be able to go on and help me with this. And so you're going to do law. Well, in 1505, Luther had an experience where he was caught in a thunderstorm. And in the midst of this this thunderstorm, he got so scared, he feared for his life, that he cried out to St. Anne. Now, St. Anne apparently is a mother of Mary. He cried out to her and he basically said, look, if you could get me through this, if I survive this, I promise you I will become a monk. Well, he survived. And he went ahead and he joined the monastery. Now, Hans, Martin's father, was not happy about this. And you could imagine as a father, you have, you've worked hard, you're paying for this education for your son or your daughter, and they come and tell you, oh, by the way, I changed uh, my degree and now I'm doing this. I sold all my books, I dropped out, but I joined the monastery. And for some people, they might be, oh, great, but for Hans, he was like, what did you do? Like, stop, go back, Luther wouldn't. And so, as you know, to be a monk, you really were... You were telling yourself, you were making a commitment, and you were going to say, look, I'm going to cut myself off from the world entirely. I'm surrendering my will. I'm surrendering what I want to do. And I'm going to go and plug into this monastery, and I'm going to live my life for them. Well, Luther would join an Augustinian monastery. And I learned that there were different orders of monasteries or monks that existed in this time. There were Augustinian monks, there were Benedictine, Franciscan, Dominican, and then after the Reformation, Jesuit uh, monasteries as well. 
Luther would join an Augustinian monastery. They were known for primarily two things. First of all, they referred to themselves as observant monks. And what that meant, what that meant was they would follow the rules down to a T. So you think about like the friar that always comes out in the movies of Robin Hood, right? The guy with the wagon and the beer and the barrels of beer, you know, and he's eats a lot and so on and so forth. Okay, the Augustinian order of monks were not lazy. They were very hard workers and they took their commitment very seriously. So they were known for that. Another thing that they were known for was how they emphasized education. And they put the monks through so much reading and learning and education. They were hard workers. And so when Luther said, I'm joining this monastery, he pretty much took a vow of obedience to his superiors. Almost like joining the military. When they told Luther to do something, he had to do it right then and there. No arguments whatsoever. Yes, I will do that right now. And so what, what they would do, kind of on a daily way of life, they fasted frequently. They were always fasting. They prayed incessantly. They would pray what was known as the hours. And basically, they would start at 3 a.m. in the morning. And every three hours, so 3, 6, 9, noon, 3 p.m., 6 p.m., 9 p.m., every three hours, they would go and they would say their prayers. They prayed a lot. When they weren't praying, then they were learning, they were reading, they were studying. And in their spare time, they would engage in hard manual labor. So these guys were non-stop. I mean, uh, they, would, they would put me to shame, I'll be honest with you. Because they, man, they were just hard workers. And you think about Martin Luther and his commitment. He is doing the very best he can to live for God, to serve God, to work for God, if you will. Well... He lived this life. Oh, by the way, in every six weeks, they would read through the books of the Psalms. Throughout all of this, after all of this hard work, Luther would go on to obtain his Bachelor of Arts in the Bible. He would go on to get his Bachelor of Arts in his sentences. And it was called the sentences, but they were quotes from famous and intellectual uh, preachers or theologians before him and also key passages in scripture anybody who was going to get a degree in uh, systemic theology had to master this textbook so he got his BA in that after transferring to the university in Wittenberg he would obtain his doctorate of theology and so Martin Luther man he was hardworking. he was very well educated And he wasted little to no time. Even though he did all that, he had a major struggle. There was something that just drove him crazy and he couldn't come to grips with it. He he made this statement. If ever a monk should have gone to heaven by his monkery, it was I, he said. 
If I kept on any longer, then I would have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. In the medieval times, this illustration, it shows their theology or their way of thinking of salvation and the Christian life. So starting at the left, left top-hand corner, you see, well, first of all, a person is born, and then immediately they are baptized. And when they are baptized, it was taught, they would at that moment be infused with this grace from God. And it would be a starting point. This grace of God would begin to empower the person, the individual, to want to live in obedience to God, to want to live for him. Well, they were baptized, and after they were baptized, they entered into this, what was called this state of grace. They're in this state of grace. Now, if you notice above that phrase, state of grace, there's this cycle that happens over and over. You see, well, a person sins, right? Then they would have to go to their priest, confess their sins. The priest would then give them their penance, tell them what they would have to do. And then they would enter back into that state of grace. And they would just go through this cycle over and over and over. And by the way, at the end of life, when an individual would die, they would go to purgatory where they would finish paying for their sins. And eventually, when that was completed, be released into heaven. Well, Luther... Martin Luther is stuck right here between sin and confession. And it's something that he can't get past because what he knew was that when you went to go and confess your sins, there had to be remorse. You had to be truly and sincerely sorry. Your confession, the words that you said to the priest, they had to be genuine. And Martin Luther could never satisfy in his mind that he was pure in his remorse. He would confess, but it seemed like, you know what, I didn't really mean that. His vicar general, the monk that took Martin Luther under his wing, Johann van Staupitz, he would confess to this man for hours. He would confess to this man for hours, and ultimately, I read even up to six hours, and Staupitz would just hear him out. <laughs> Poor Staupitz, right? He would sit there and just, I don't know what he would do, you know, nod your head, what do you do, right? And he would listen to Luther confess over and over, yes, Father, but I didn't mean that when I said that, and my motives how am I sure that they were pure? And so he was stuck. He couldn't get past that. Well, Staupitz, wanting to get Luther out of his despair, he said, you know what, man? You are thinking too much about yourself. You need to start thinking about, I need to get you to start thinking about other people. So um, he would go on 
to try and, and just work with him. Luther, it is said, didn't have peace, but he entered this, what was called in German, Anfechtungen. And I'm mortifying the pronunciation. But that's a German word that basically, in English, we would use these kinds of words to uh, define it. Depression, anxiety, doubt, fear, anger, frustration. Luther would go through bouts of just these struggles in his mind and in his heart. And he didn't know what to do. There was no answer. There was no answer for him. Well, Staupitz, wanting to help Luther out, wanting to get him to stop thinking about himself, he says, you know what? You just got your doctorate in the Bible. You are going to become now the professor of biblical theology at the University of Wittenberg, which, by the way, Staupitz uh, was the dean of. And Luther reluctantly said, like, I don't, that's going to kill me if I do that. Staupitz would tell him, you know what? God needs educated people in heaven to come on. You're going to be the professor. So Martin Luther was put in a position where he had to now explain to students what the Bible meant. And he began to study the text, not only in Latin, but also in Greek and in Hebrew. And so he's, this is where we see Luther just, he's, God's working all this out in his life, and he's doing this studying. Well, he, he has what we call, or what he calls this tower experience. He calls it his tower experience. We don't know if it happened literally in a tower. It very well may have. But just think of it as he's calling it his, man, this is my mountaintop experience that I had. Something happened in my life, and it, it was life-changing. And what was happening is Martin Luther was wrestling with this text in God's Word out of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is a power of God to salvation for anyone, for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, when Luther first read this, he couldn't grasp it. It made him upset because in his mind, the way that he was taught, the way that he was trained, when he read, the just shall live by faith, well, living by faith meant that cycle of sin and confession and penance, but Luther is like, it doesn't work. Luther, fed up, crying out to God, wrestling with this, finally understands. And he understands, he comes to the conclusion that when he reads about the righteousness of God, it's referring to Christ's righteousness that covers us. When he reads about living by faith, it refers to trusting in the work of Christ. That is how one becomes justified, he concludes. By trusting in the work of Christ. When he reads about righteousness, Luther concludes, 
I can't attain righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness, righteousness that is counted as mine. And so this is Luther's tower experience. He would later go on to say, at that moment, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise. Can you just think for a minute the relief, the peace that Luther had at this moment when he understood I'm, I'm working so hard, but I'm never going to get there. But you know what? Christ already did it. He did it for me. He's, he's, all I have to do is I have to place my faith and trust in what Christ has done. And so I don't know about you all, but that, that was true in my life where I thought I had to work. I thought I had to, uh, you know, like I'm on the, I'm on the, I'm on the team and if I don't, you know, if I, if I don't do good, I'm going to be kicked off the team kind of thing. And you know what? Eventually, God brought me to this same understanding. Like, you know what? You can't obtain righteousness with your own works. But if you place your faith in Christ, then you're already there. And it's a beautiful thing. It's so freeing. Would you all agree with that? Amen, Amen right? Okay. Sometime, we don't know when this tower experience happens. Um, it's thought it could have happened as early as 1508 to as late as 1518. I think 1518 is too late because that's after the 95 Theses. I'm thinking before the posting of the 95 Theses, he has this tower experience. Well... The next big thing that happens in his life is the posting of the 95 Theses. And I learned quite a bit about what Luther's intentions were. If you look at these pictures, you know, in some of these pictures, he's turning around and he's pointing at them. Um, some people ridiculed how in every painting, the hammer seemed to keep getting bigger and bigger. It's like, how big a... You're putting a couple of fine nails on a piece of paper. Uh, do you need the sledgehammer? No, right? Uh, but I need to set this up, though. The 95 Theses in Luther's life, this was what kind of sparked the Reformation. This is where it kind of started for him. Now, in order to set up what's going on here, I need to t tell you about a couple of individuals. First of all, Pope Leo X. He is the Pope of the Holy Roman Empire at this time. And he was not a holy man. He was, he was gross. He was perverted. He was very selfish. And he was not a good person. He was not a, a good person, much less a good Pope. Right. Well, within two years of him being pope, and, and you can look this up in, in history, he depleted the treasuries um, of the of the Holy Roman Catholic Empire that that he had available to him. He spent it all, and 
to his embarrassment, he had to stop his work on the glorious Basilica of St. Peter's. Now, you can go and, and look at pictures of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and it's a beautiful place. It's, it's amazing, and those were his intentions. He wanted to build a basilica, St. Peter's Basilica. Man, it's going to be top-notch, unlike any other. When you think about people like Michelangelo, who went and, and painted the ceiling in there, and all these just really intricate details... But he has to stop. And by the way, at this time, it's the old St. Peter's Basilica that's there in existence. And it's said that that place was falling apart. It was questionable as to whether or not it was a safe place to meet in. Reminds me of some buildings around here. Okay? Uh, But you know what? He's embarrassed. He's blown all the money. The work has to stop. He needs to raise some money. And so he went back to one of the most productive forms of fundraising in the Catholic, in the history of the Catholic Church. And that was the selling of indulgences. And we're going to, I'm going to share a little bit more about that in here in just a minute. But just consider this. Pope Leo X broke, all right, needs money. The next person I want to tell you about is this guy, Albert of Mainz. Now, Albert of Mainz is the Archbishop of Mainz. And the way he became the Archbishop of Mainz, it wasn't because he was first this holy uh, priest who was really anointed by God. No. What he did is he borrowed large amounts of money from a very wealthy family. And he then bought his rank, if you will, of archbishop. That's how he had that office of archbishop. Around this time, he had his eyes set on another office that would bring to him uh, more power, more wealth. And so Albert goes back to this wealthy family and he borrows more money to attain this office. And so he's at the point where he is, man, he is cash broke. I mean, the dude is broke, okay? He has nothing, and he's in need of money. Well, he goes and he talks to Pope Leo X. And he says, is it possible, would you allow the sales of indulgences to take place in my lands as well? And the Pope says, you know what? I will allow it, and I'll tell you what, I'll split the profits with you. So the two of them go in on this, on this selling of indulgences. Well, they hire a man by the name of Johann Tetzel. And Johann Tetzel is a salesman already. No offense to you salesmen, but salesman, right? He's a salesman. But what's worse is he's a salesman of indulgences. Now, he would travel around with an entourage of people. He would send somebody before him into the city to announce to everyone, hey, ladies and gentlemen, tomorrow you are going to have an opportunity to purchase indulgences for you and for your loved ones. 
John Tetzel, Johann Tetzel, would then show up the next day, and he would bring with him this chest where you could put money in for the indulgences. And he would then, either from a pulpit or in open air, just preach this hellfire and brimstone type sermon. And he would, and, and you know what? He was good at what he did. So eventually he would call those who were listening to him. He would call on them and he would tell them, consider the cries of your loved ones who are being tormented in purgatory. We're being tortured in purgatory right now. And consider what you could do to release them from that torment. He came up with a jingle when uh, the coin in the coffer rings, a soul out of purgatory springs. That was his thing. So he was so good at what he did, people would line up to buy these indulgences. They would drop money in the chest. They would then be given a certificate. And on this certificate were blank spaces where they could write in the date that it was purchased and the name for whom it was purchased. And so you think this, this man, this Tetzel, he was a Dominican he, uh, Friar, he, he went and he, to people who didn't have the opportunity to read the Bible in their own language, they couldn't go to church and hear it in their own language. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know any better. He would go and in the name of the, Ro- the Roman Catholic Church, in the name of God, he would tell them these lies. And people would break down and say, I need, I need to pay for my mother, my father, my aunt, my grandparents. And so he would sell them these indulgences. You could buy them for yourself. You could buy them for relatives that had also passed on. Well, all this is starting to take place in the area where Luther is. Luther catches wind of this and it just doesn't sit right with him. Now imagine, remember, he's had this tower experience. It's like at this point, the Holy Spirit is speaking more and more and teaching Luther. And he hears about this and he says, this ain't right. Now he's a professor at the time. So what he does, it wasn't uncommon what he did, by the way. He went to the door of that church in Wittenberg. And he posted 95 theses or propositions that he was willing to defend. And this was something that it wasn't uncommon. I learned that he posted a separate set of 97 theses the month before about something different. And so the way it worked is you would post these theses or these propositions for everybody to read. And it was in hopes that there would be an open discussion debate, if you will. Let me come and defend what I'm saying, and I will hear you out on your points as well. It's interesting to note that at this time, Luther wasn't this heels dug in, boxing gloves on reformer. He doesn't know exactly what he's getting himself into. Because in these 95 theses, theses, 
He's attacking the abuse of the sales of indulgences. Notice, not necessarily even the sales of indulgences. He's attacking the abuse of the sales of indulgences. He's not talking about justification by grace. He's posting these propositions in hope that there'll be a debate and that there'll be a correction in the church. Something that was common in those times. Well, in a matter of weeks, or more like under a couple of months, his 95 theses are taken down. They're translated from Latin into German. They're printed and they're handed out like crazy. And so you have the, the sheet with Martin Luther's 95 theses, theses going around. And this then provokes the Roman Catholic Church to respond. It wasn't the fact that he went and he posted on the door. It was the fact that now everyday people could read in their own language what Martin Luther had written down. And it was against the Holy Roman Catholic Church. So now they had to respond. And so they weren't happy. Martin Luther is getting into trouble. And he didn't even realize it quite yet. By the way, these two gentlemen, John Wycliffe and Jan Hus, they argued much of these same points before Luther. But one of the big differences was the printing press. They couldn't get their literature, if you will, out the way Luther could. Gutenberg's invention of the movable face type and the press meant that books could now be printed in large numbers, sold cheaply, and distributed widely. And so because of this, you have this invention of this press, this printing press, and they wanted to use it. They wanted to use it. So what they, hey, let's go get those 95 theses. Let's make copies of those and let's pass those out. Let's see if people want to read that. In today's terms, Luther's 95 theses went viral. Right? Because now he's got all these pages printed out all over the place. And the church, they find out, and now Luther gets in trouble. Well, the Catholic church responds. And at first, at first initially, they exert indirect pressure. They tell him, hey, bro, you got to take it easy. Right? You got to calm down on these things that you're saying contradictory to the church. Okay? And so they send cardinals, they interview him, they put pressure on him. But Martin Luther, as, he, as this is happening, he's in disbelief. He's in disbelief that the church is not responding to his call of the abuse of the sales of indulgences. And as he's going through all this in his mind, he's beginning to better understand. He's beginning to better express himself and his theology and the gospel and, and how, you know what? We need to look at the Bible for, for our theology and our doctrine. And so he gets invited to what is known as the Heidelberg Disputation in 1518. Now this it was basically a debate at the University of Heidelberg. And Luther now gets to go 
and debate, and the subject of the debate was the 95 theses and the indulgences. And so Luther now gets this opportunity. He gets to go and vocally share his thoughts, his convictions, what he's thinking through. And eventually, more and more, his thoughts and convictions become clearer and clearer. So, after that, he is invited to the Leipzig disputation. And here he goes up against Johann Eck. And Johann Eck is like a heretic hunter for the Catholic Church. And he, much like if you could imagine a prosecuting attorney, he corners Luther. And he doesn't attack Luther about the issue on indulgences. He doesn't attack Luther about salvation and how that has come about. But what he he puts Luther on the spot and he asks him this question. Do you or do you not believe that the Pope can err? Puts him on the spot. Luther has to answer. And Luther says, Ja, ich bin Hussit. In German, yes, I am a Hussite. Referring to Jan Hus, who had also proclaimed that, you know what, the Pope isn't God. He is a man who can make mistakes. And so after that, the Pope issues a papal bull. Now, he didn't send Luther a matador. This wasn't going to take place in Spain. That word bull refers to this coin that would be attached to this official document given by the Pope himself. And, and there's a picture there in the center and on the top left. This coin would be made out of uh, lead. It would be heated to the point of melting. And when done on one side of the coin, it would have the faces of St. Peter and St. Paul. On the other side of the coin, it would have the name of the Pope issuing the papal bull. So in this case, uh, Leo X. Very official, very important, carrying all of the weight of the Pope behind it document. In this document, there are 41 points, all against Luther, but two main points. Against Luther concerning the indulgences and against Luther concerning what he said about the Pope being able to be wrong. He can err. And so this was a warning. It gave him so many days. Luther, you've got so many days to recant. Otherwise, uh, you're going to be excommunicated. Well, um, on the top right hand of the screen, you'll see there, Luther would famously go and get that very important document. He would go to the city square in Vinton. Wittenberg, and he would burn it. He burned that. That was his response. Well, another papal bull was issued where Luther is now officially uh, a heretic. Luther is officially excommunicated from the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And at this point, whenever that happened, Luther would then go on and be put on trial, not by the Catholic Church. The Church had already excommunicated him, but he would be put on trial by the state. And he would have to go before all of the leaders, the princes uh, of 
the Roman, Holy Roman Empire along with the emperor himself. And he would have to go and stand before him and give an answer to him. That took place at the Diet of Worms. It sounds gross, right? But a diet, let me tell you what a diet is. A diet is a sort of a congressional meeting of all constituencies of the princes with the Holy Roman Emperor himself. And at this place, it took place in Worms. That's called the Diet of Worms. Luther is demanded to recant, and he says these words that have become famous. Luther says, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither honest nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. As a result, Martin Luther is declared an outlaw by the Emperor Charles V. Well, Jan Hus found himself previously in a very similar situation. And when he was convicted an outlaw, Jan Hus was executed. Martin Luther had a friend. And Frederick the Wise was his name. He was the Prince of Saxony. Frederick the Wise was also the founder of the university where Luther taught at. Frederick the Wise, before Luther went to the Diet of Worms, he convinced Charles V to promise Luther a safe uh, travel back to his home, or back to Wittenberg, from the Diet of Worms. Because Frederick the Wise knew what, what would happen if, in fact, he was convicted. So Charles V gave him that promise. Well, Martin Luther leaves the Diet of Worms. He's going back to Wittenberg. And he gets kidnapped. Frederick the Wise ordered some of his men to go and kidnap Martin Luther after the Diet of Worms and to take him someplace safe to hide Luther. And he told his men, I don't want to know where you are taking him, but you need to kidnap him, take him someplace safe, keep him there. He needs to hide because they're going to kill him. And for months, Charles V would be looking for Luther, and he would ask Frederick the Wise, where's Luther? And Frederick would say, I don't know. And he didn't. The Wartburg Castle is where Martin Luther would spend almost a year in hiding, about 10 months. And in this castle, he's, remember, he's, he's an outlaw. He can't walk up to anybody important and say or do anything, they're going to kill him. So he's hiding out. And in his time there, he begins to translate the Bible into German. One of the things he uses is Erasmus's Bible, which was like an interlinear. In one column on a page, he had the original Greek. And in that next column on that same page, he had a new, more modern Latin translation. It was, in his days, his NLT, right? 
It was written in a Latin uh, version that was easier to understand. Well, Luther uses this greatly and begins to translate what would become the Luther Bible. And he would come up with a Bible that was written in the language of his people in German. In 12 weeks in that castle, Luther would translate most of the New Testament, and it would be published in September of 1522. After 12 years, along with uh, pastors and professors from Wittenberg, the Old Testament would also be ready, and by 1534, the complete Luther Bible was made available. It was published. I thought this was something we only had, but look at Luther, his first try. It was published with prefaces to books in the Bible, explanatory notes on difficult and important verses. Key passages were set in bold, and there were over a hundred illustrations in his Bible. Man, what a well done done job. In the 20 years of his translation, over 500,000 copies of this Bible, either in part or in whole, were printed and distributed within the Holy Roman Empire. What a thing where God would force him into, or use this moment where he's forced into a castle, and Luther says, all right, well, I'll start translating into German, right? And he comes up with a Bible. After this, Luther would go on and just lay the foundation for the reformation of the church. Remember, in the medieval times, the Holy Roman Catholic Church, the way it was being run, was the only church that there was. There was no other choice. It was a church that was being run by people that were not godly. Luther comes and he reforms things. God is speaking to him. God is giving him wisdom and insight. And so just a couple of things. In 1522, Luther returned to Wittenberg and put into effect a spiritual reform that became the model for much of Germany. He abolished the office of bishop because he couldn't find anywhere in scripture that would warrant for that. He said the churches need pastors and shepherds, not dignitaries. Most of the ministers in Saxony and surrounding territories abandoned celibacy Monks and nuns got married. Luther himself would take a wife in 1525 who was also a former nun, Catherine von Bora. Luther would go on to revise the Latin liturgy and translated it into German. The lady received the communion in the bread and the wine as the Hussites had demanded a century earlier. And the whole emphasis in worship changed from the celebration of the sacrificial mass to the preaching and teaching of God's word, hallelujah. What a difference. Now people could go to church, get a Bible in their own language that they could read, and be taught in their own language And learn and grow. To the question, how is a person saved? Luther would respond, not by works. I've already tried there. It didn't work. Not by works, but by faith alone. 
To the question, where does religious authority lie? He would say, not in the visible institution called the Roman Church or the Roman Catholic Church, but in the Word of God found in the Bible. That is the final authority. To the question, what is a church? He would say, the whole community of Christian believers, since all are priests before God. To the question, what is the essence of Christian living? He would reply, serving God in any useful calling, whether ordained or lay. Changed history for the church. I want to close with a couple of verses. And would you look at what I'm doing? I'm putting kind of an interlinear up here for you. Same verses in two different translations. Because it's what Luther did. And you know what? You and I have the same privilege. It's a beautiful thing. John 6, 28. They said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Same verse in the Amplified translation of the Bible. Verse 28, then they said to him, What are we to do that we may habitually be working the works of God? What are we to do to carry out what God requires? Jesus replied, This is the work or service that God asks of you, that you believe in the one whom he has sent, that is, that you cleave to him, that you trust him, that you rely on him, and have faith in him. Have you done that? One more verse. The verses that Martin Luther struggled with, that later he would call his tower experience. Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation, For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. New Living Translation. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the, scripture, as the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. And I want to close with that. There has to come a point in our lives where we surrender to Christ where we surrender to God, we might be misled in our own hearts and minds into thinking that God loves us based on our performance. Well, I'd like to point out to you that he doesn't love you based on your performance. He loves you, first of all, because that is who he is. But he loves you because of what his son did for you and I on the cross. There is nothing you could ever do that would get you any closer to God than what Christ did for you on the cross. Your placing your faith and trust in Him is the utmost 
that you could possibly do to attain this state of righteousness before Christ, before God. There is nothing more you can do. It starts with you coming to this understanding and saying to him, God, I want to place my faith and my trust in you and in your work. And so I want to invite you all, if you haven't done that already, to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us such a great example. Lord, Martin Luther was not perfect. But how you used him. And Lord, the the fruit that we are reaping, the benefits that we've gained. Lord, that we can sit here and, and think about how we can look at your word in our own language. Lord, how, how we can have access to you. Lord, it's amazing. And it's a beautiful thing. And Lord, I want to pray for anyone who has been trying to work to earn your approval. Those who are trying to perform so that you would love them. Lord, I pray that you would give them understanding and show them that you did the work on the cross. And that if anyone places their faith and trust in you and in that work, then they attain your righteousness, your right standing. They are forgiven. They are cleansed and washed clean. And they become your child for all of eternity. And if you haven't done that, I just want to give you a moment to make that confession to him right now. And you tell him that. You say, Lord, I believe in you with all of my heart. I will not try to perform to gain righteousness. I lean wholeheartedly upon your finished work on the cross. And I trust in all that you did. I place my faith in you. I ask that you forgive me. Cleanse me from all of my unrighteousness. Give me eternal life. Help me to live for you. And Lord, with that, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy and your patience with us. And we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.